0: This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it's a great privilege for me to be sitting here at London School of Theology with
1: Professor Tony Lane.
0: Yes, well, thank you, Ben. Excellent. And uh, how long have you been here at uh, London School of Theology,
1: Tony? (laughs) Well, quite a long while, actually. I, I started in... Uh nineteen seventy three good gracious, yes, yes, so I was uh, I joined the staff of the faculty then mm-hmm. uh, and then as of uh, nineteen uh, sorry, two thousand and eight, I began to sort of wind down a bit, and first of all, I went to being eighty percent and then sixty percent and so on and uh, I'm, I'm, i my status now is I'm technically retired, but I'm still active. I have a number of research students i'm um uh, teach one module a year, and, and, and various other bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. So I'm still active. Ah, excellent. So. Now, when you
0: started in the 70s, was uh-huh. the location down in Marylebone? No, oh.
1: no. It moved here in 1970, and oh. I joined three days, three years later. Mm. And I have seen the building where it used to be in Marylebone Road from the outside, but uh, only from the outside from a distance.
0: Mm. Of course, it, must, yeah. it presumably must have been a fraction of the size of this.
1: Yes, yes. It was, it was a sort of... Um, office block mm. in 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 Melbourne Road mm. and uh, even then I think they didn't have the whole building mm. yeah I mean the, the thing is so I'm told is that when it was there the faculty they would have a, a, a sort of a common room and then they if they needed to talk to a student there would be a room they could use but not not a room each just a room gracious uh, whereas here when they, when we moved here everybody had their own office mm. with, um, a seminar room, as it was called then, with mm. chairs having seminars in and so on. And yes, it must have been like the promised land. Yes, my word, yeah, the, the dreams. My parents
0: studied at London Bible College when it was uh, in, in Marinerburn. Mm. And, of course, the, uh, it has an extraordinary heritage. It was Donald Guthrie mm. was mm. teaching there, and mm. uh, Ernest Kevin. Mm. My father tells me that Donald Guthrie, when he would lecture, he had a stutter. Mm. Not just when he lectured. But when he preached... It went fascinating
1: yeah that's interesting I mean he, he I remember I mean hearing him preach yes yes I mean I think he had to work his way around it you mm-hmm. know and mm-hmm. so it must be awful always having to think of how am I going to phrase this yes, and get yes. it out and so on yeah yes yes, uh, yes I
0: wonder it'd be fascinating to hear him but what a legacy he left you that his books have been respected for generations mm. and, uh, you remember. When, when contemporary characters like Don Carson say this is mm. this is still mm. worth reading, you think, well,
1: mm. it's probably mm. still worth reading. Well, the building where my room is is called the Guthrie Centre, ah. which was uh, built in the 90s and ah. named after him.
0: Now, of course, you're, you are considered to be, and, and uh, you can correct me if <laughs> I get it wrong,
1: you're considered to be a world expert on John Calvin. Well, one of many, many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have... My, I, when I started doing theological research, it was on Calvin. That was in uh, 1969. Mm-hmm. So um, so I suppose I could say I've studied Calvin in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, uh, coming up for about <laughs> seven or eight decades. Obviously, not whole decades, but just the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 20s. But um, yes, so, so I've studied him for a long time. You were into Calvin mm-hmm. before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> But back
0: then in the in the 1960s, uh, do you remember how you first came across
1: Calvin? Yes, I do actually. Um, w- well, it, there was somebody who was very influential on me when I was a student and he uh, sort of got me interested in Calvin and and for my 21st birthday, I asked some, so some friends to give me a copy of Calvin's Institutes and uh, and I read it. it obviously it, it's sort of a little bit heavy going at that point, but but even but found it was quite profitable. Then when I started doing research, initially I was working on on, on the New Testament, Romans chapter 6. And uh, I, I did that for about six weeks before I realized, I found out, that the subject, the, the topic that interested me, the question that interested me, had already really been answered. And I was going to be shunted, as often happens in New Testament studies, into some really obscure detail, which frankly I wasn't going to be interested in. And I realized where my interest really was in historical theology, and, and Calvin in particular. And uh, and so I um, I then started working on Calvin.
0: So, and where did you come from before uh,
1: London School of Theology? Where did where were you, where were you come from before you were in London? I was a research student at Cambridge, mm-hmm. and uh, the year before coming here, uh, I did a sort of, uh, I worked for the Tyndale Fellowship part-time, happened to set up some... Theological study groups and with Oliver Barclay uh-huh. and I also uh, taught church history part-time at Oak Hill. Uh-huh. I was still based in Cambridge and still doing and the research.
0: Where were you born? Where did you, where did you grow up as a child?
1: <laughs> Those are two different questions. <laughs> yeah. I was I was born in Buxton in Derbyshire uh-huh. and uh, didn't last a year there but um, we uh, then moved down to, uh, to, to London. So did your, your parents have the nor- they were proper northern is they? No, my mother was from London, and my, my father, I'm not sure where he was, I think he may have been from the Manchester I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah.
0: And mm. how did you come to understand the
1: Gospel yourself? Yeah, well actually, the, what actually happened is when I was about four, my parents separated, I think, uh, um, I suspect part of it, my mother, father probably had a bit of a drink problem. And my mother and I went down to Hastings or, on the south coast. But uh, actually, slightly before then, uh, my mother, my grandmother, when I was about two or three, I forget, I forget which, if you understand why, said, um, he, he hasn't been done, has he? And so my, they, they went to the local vicar. And he said, Well, you don't go to church. She said, But um, I'll do it if you promise, to, to my mother, he said, to, to, to get confirmed to go to church so she um being dutiful she did what when we were in hastings she got confirmed and went to church and so i was brought up as a church girl but i, I don't think my mother my mother didn't really have a living faith at that point point. Hmm. and um when i was about 10 or thereabouts we went to this uh, church where a man called D. R. davis was preaching he's he, he's a i discovered later on quite a a significant author who wrote a number of things a very fiery welsh preacher and he left me with a sort of um, a certain sense of sin and conviction, and 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 so on. And he uh, he got through to you a bit. A bit, but not too much. <laughs> no, mm-hmm. no. It was later on. I actually, it was it was because it, it's uh, Lee Abbey in Devon. Um, uh, uh, my last year at school, I was going to have a gap year, and, and the chaplain at the school suggested I should go and work for a friend of his, who was a vicar in South London, who was setting up a, a youth group started, and I said to the chaplain, I said, well, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. He said, oh, it doesn't matter. So I went along to this rather liberal high church, uh, but there was this very enthusiastic young teacher f- who was a friend of Lee Abbey. You know Lee Abbey oh, in, yes. in, in Devon? And he, he started, he had quite an influence o- among us younger folk, because he was older than either, either I or all the... The, the the people who have been formed into the youth group. And he um, got us to go to this uh, Lee Abbey event in London. And after it, I had a chat with him. And he explained to me that being a Christian meant being wholly committed. And I thought, well, Right, okay, that's all right. And I, I can't remember too much about the conversation, but I remember the subject of sin came up, and I actually said, I, I find this hilarious, I actually said, I can't think of anything I've ever done that's wrong. <laughs> so the uh, the Welsh preacher's sense of conviction was a very fleeting one. Right, 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 right. And then I went abroad for seven months to the Netherlands and came back, and when I got back, um, again through the same chap, um, from uh, with connections to Lee Abbey. a whole lot of us went to a youth camp down at Lee Abbey in August and during the course of that week there were this series of sermons and there was a sort of culmination in the middle of the week on on the theme of you must be born again and and, and so on and it was just that was when it all happened and so I I, I regard the earlier event as, as my sort of uh, my conception, <laughs> mm-hmm. and the one event at Liabea is my birth, right, so it was right. a sort of nine-month gestation process, okay. <laughs> uh, a process with, um, you know, with a beginning and an end. Mm. Uh, and
0: and you, were, you were a teenager at this time?
1: Yeah, yeah it was just um, a few weeks before I became a student, so oh, right. it was very oh, good, really timing. good timing. Gracious me, good timing. And you'd gone to, what were you doing in Holland? Yes, I worked, I, I worked with Shell. I, I was a computer programmer, Pretty and I, I programmed second-generation computers. Uh-huh. Uh, the computer we programmed was as large as this room. Good and I, I mean total volume, as large as this room. And it had, of course, far less computing power than uh, a, a, a modern mobile phone would have. And they had a first-generation computer whose job was to... to Turn the old program into punch cards to go into the, into, into the second generation punch computer. Punch cards. I have to go into the second generation. Yeah.
0: Graciously. <laughs> yeah. So this was right at the beginning of computing. Ah. And then you went up to Cambridge to study what?
1: Uh, well, I was a mathematician and I yeah. went up and did maths and did. No, so I went to Oxford and did maths for three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then halfway through, I was talking to the um, curate at our, our church. And he said to me, what, what, what are you going to do when you finish? And I said, well, I'll probably go, and, go on and do research in maths, but what I'd really like to do is theology. And he said, well, why don't you? And I said, well, I don't feel called to the ministry. And he said, well, well, that doesn't matter. And that set me thinking. And actually, two people, I, I, I had a chat with with Jim Packer, who was, he was based at Oxford, so I mean, he was around all the time. And I had a chat with him about it, and I had a chat, went to to Cambridge to talk to Derek Kidner, who was the warden at Tyndale House. And the upshot of it was that over a period of time I became convinced that this was the right way forward, and uh, so it it, it all happened. So, and, and now you're there at Oxford,
0: and you can go and knock the door of Jim Packer. And you can have a have a chat yeah. with Derek Kidner. Yeah. So yeah. when you were up at Oxford, uh, was the OIC, were you part of the OIKU? Yes, yes, indeed, yes. You had yes. people come and speak for you. Oh well?
1: yeah, yeah, lots of lots of uh, you know, sort of the Michael Greens and the John Stotts and the Dick Lucases. They all came regularly, and mm-hmm. so on. there was some conference, and John Stott was a speaker, and I nobbled him to talk to him about Roman six, and he obviously uh, he my, and I in the course of the conversation, I, I mentioned he must have come up that I was going to Cambridge to do. Uh, Research on that, and he came and spoke to the kikuyu in my first term there, and and I was he was late arriving, and I was just sitting there actually in, in the front row, a sort of circular thing, and as he came in to speak, and walked past, he he stopped and greeted me by name, and I've, there are lots of other stories of that. He had a, you know, for, when you think of all the people he met in his yes. ministry. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it was intentional. I'm sure that after our conversation, he went away and wrote it down and made a note and so on. But, I mean, that that says something about his pastoral heart. It does. He, uh, and, and the, I know many others have stories like that about John Stott. Yeah,
0: I've heard Sinclair Ferguson say that Stott saw him at a conference. I think he said it was in Edinburgh. And Stott said to him, how are you, Sinclair? I regularly pray for you and for Dorothy. Which made hmm. you think, aha, uh-huh. he means yeah. it. He, yeah. he must do, because... Yeah. 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 Indeed. Yes. Okay. So five years at Oxford. So three years maths, two years a BA Mm -hmm. in theology, and Mm -hmm. then you went to do uh, straight to do a PhD at at Cambridge. Yes. Yes. Uh Yes. That's right. Yes. What was it like being taught in Cambridge when you were learning things which are so evangelically clear? Was, was,
1: Was Kidner involved? Well, no, 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 no. In fact, this is quite a remarkable thing because you remember I went to Cambridge to do New Testament. With Charlie Mole, who who, had lots of research students, was a very good supervisor. Now, obviously, when I turned to do Calvin, he wasn't going to be any use. It wasn't his area. But it just so happened that the leading Calvin scholar in the UK, THL Parker, was a country vicar two or three miles outside Cambridge. I mean, in God's providence. Amazing. He was there on the spot. Fantastic. So I had him as my my first supervisor,
0: and you you uh, did a PhD in Calvin. Anything particular? Just Calvin January? No, no, no. It
1: was Calvin's um, Calvin's use of Bernard of Clairvaux.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. My yeah. goodness. Well, if you in reading the institutes, when he ever cites Bernard, it's always yeah. this this mm. beautiful, heart resonant, mm. um, and very devotional mm. uh, priority mm. that Bernard seemed to have.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because what happened is, uh, in my undergraduate studies, um, there was a, you had a certain amount of choice of optional papers. And as I was doing it in two years, and as I was coming from, not from a sort of classics background or anything like that, but maths, I thought, if I'm going to, to succeed in this, I need to f- narrow my focus. So actually, I, uh, of the nine finals papers I did, five were biblical, and four were on the early church, It was early church doctrine and and Mm -hmm. an optional text Mm -hmm. paper, early church history and an optional text paper. So it wasn't exactly a broad background, Mm -hmm. but it it meant I really got immersed in it. Mm -hmm. And while I was doing that, I I forget exactly how it happened, but I I read John Henry Newman, his Ah. essay on the development of Christian doctrine. And he has this famous statement in the beginning. He says, well, whatever historic Christianity may be, one thing is clear, it's not Protestantism. And I regarded that as a a challenge. And so the reason I looked to Calvin and Bernard was Calvin um, seeks to, well, he obviously isn't directly answering Newman, but he answers that charge, you know, that they have abandoned the early church. And he, he was a student of the, very much a student of the church fathers. And Bernard is regarded as the last of the fathers. Hmm. and so and, and in fact right now I'm working on an, another article on Calvin and Ambrose. so I've, oh. I haven't left behind this Calvin and the fathers you know yeah. and I've done a number of things in between in the years in between as well so that, it has been an ongoing interest
0: uh-huh.
1: um, but actually right now I'm working um, Crossway in the States they're doing a new translation of the Institutes and um, somebody else is doing the translating I'm the editor of that and we've just finished book oh, one, so uh, it's, uh, it's it's well underway. Uh-huh.
0: Is this because uh, the, uh, they recently reissued the French one, the Banner of Truth, and now so is this going to be the definitive? Uh, going back to the to the to the Latin,
1: it's it's the Latin, but um, the the, the chapter doing the translation he uh, he refers to the French, where the French has something distinctive to offer, but it is a translation of the Latin, oh, so it'll be the. Let's get this right. I think the sixth. Yes. So there was um, Norton in the 16th century, and Jim Packer reckoned it was the best translation, but of course into 16th century English. Uh, And then you had Allen and Beveridge in the uh, 19th century, and then you had battles uh, in the 20th. So actually, the fifth, the fifth one. Uh How striking!
0: Wow. how fascinating.
1: So that's coming out soon, I guess. <laughs> wow. It's a long... No, no, no. I say book one is done. I mean, it'll be some years before. Uh-huh. Um, There's a long way to go yet. Uh-huh. Yeah. Gosh. Of course, the packet did the Latin.
0: Anyway, so um, you, you, you had the... Uh, now, I've, I've jumped ahead of myself because I'd like to have asked you... <laughs> I intended to ask you next, who are people from church history who have inspired you? Now, of course, we've already talked about a handful. So, yeah. so, So what was it like living with... Calvin perhaps to start with and uh... yeah
1: well actually because you, you kindly told me that question yesterday so I've had a bit of time to reflect and, and actually I think one of the most formative things on me well not the only one but one of the, one of the most formative things on me was um, as I mentioned I did uh, four papers on the early church and I think a question that I always ha- would have in mind, if anybody, especially if anybody comes up with some new idea, is if this is what the Bible says, how come the early church taught what they taught? Now, that doesn't mean they're infallible. They weren't, although they did a pretty good job. But I think some theories, and let's just take one, I mean, dispensationalism, is if, if the, um, the Bible was a, was a puzzle, a, a sort of, intellectual puzzle, which was was dug up from the sands of Egypt last week, then that would be an interesting attempt to solve the puzzle. But if it really is the case, if it's true, this whole intricate system of how all the different phases of the Bible fit together, if it really is the case, then it's the best kept che- secret in church history, because no one had an inkling of it until the 19th century. Mm. And... The New Testament writers, didn't they say anything to the people who succeeded them? Did they deliberately keep it quiet? I, I think it's, I mean, I don't think it's terribly plausible as an interpretation of the Bible anyway, but if it were true, then it just makes nonsense what happened hmm. uh, uh, in, in, in the years that followed. How, who would you,
0: I mean, if you've of course, Augustine would be a great person to read to start yeah. with if someone was thinking of who should I look to then if I want to learn about the...
1: Yeah, actually this is perhaps the time to mention a book I, I, I did some years ago It was it's called The Lion Christian Classic Collection and I chose a hundred classics books that I think are, are still worth reading today still have something to offer today and... Um, I set myself the limit of 1900 because uh, once you get into today I'm not sure how much things can be classics. Yes, I mean there are a number number of writings there from the the early fathers and um, Augustine's Confessions for for instance is one of the great classics of not just Christian history but of Western history. Mm. If you have have to have the classics of Western civilization that would belong among them And, and that's very interesting read mm. and, 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 f- and quite readable mm.
0: and uh, similarly largely because of course it's a window on another moment because it's a man discussing the very grit of his soul mm. and uh, mm. trying to confess and expose it but also for the, uh, for the constants there are some things which of course we, we may not be able to relate to the lack of access to the facilities that we have and so on but, when he describes the issues of of the heart questions of, that resonate with things like delight satisfaction, beauty, and so on they 're eternal in so many mm. ways mm. and of course uh, uh augustine is magnificent for these mm. these uh, these observations mm. so
1: you'd refer would you recommend people fight their way through the city of god or <laughs> well a, a colleague of, of mine and i we start we started um uh, some years back, we decided it's something I'd, I'd I'd never read. Well, it's actually one of these classics, but I hadn't I had read all the way through it. Um, uh, Thomas Aquinas' Summa, which oh, right. is uh, which is which is not a book as a bookshelf, yes, a whole yeah, bookshelf. Yeah. And over the course of four years, we we ploughed our way through it. And uh, for parts of it, were scintillating. Parts of it were like. Crossing a, a, a desert with the occasional oasis, uh-huh. and then when we finished that, we um, we read Peter Lombard's Sentences, which mm-hmm. uh, uh, which remarkable book because it became the standard textbook for the best part of five hundred years. So Luther, for instance, had to write a commentary on Peter Lombard's Sentences. If you did it. To do a DD or was it even the bD you had to um, write a commentary on the sentences, so they all went through it mm-hmm. and um, and that was that was a fascinating I think we'd read our way through that that was a bit shorter that was only yeah. about a year and then we, then the when I'm leading to is we then decided to work our way through the city of God so we read that mm-hmm. together
0: how did it compare in terms of the resonances of the, the the confessions
1: well the city of God is pretty heavy work i mean the first um, it's the first ten books or so. He's dealing with uh, sort of settling the accounts with classical civilization, and, and uh, uh, so I mean, it's it's not for the faint-hearted by any means. Uh, right. I mean, there are some bits which are more readable than others, but I, I think, yeah, I, I would, um, you know, Luke fourteen, count the costs uh, before embarking on this building. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not an easy task. It's right. uh, but. Um, so it's, it's certainly not for somebody who's starting just to, you know, to dip into, in, into the Father of right. the Son. I think it's so for helpful. Because confessions would, would be much easier luminous. to read. And yeah. they're golden, aren't they? Mm. They're resonant, luminous.
0: Mm. But um, that's so helpful for people to hear, if Tony Lane says, the city of God is hard work, mm. then maybe if I didn't get past halfway, I'm all right.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's a shame because um, halfway is where it starts getting interesting. <laughs> Because the first bit he's dealing, and unless of course, you're very much into um, classical civilization as it was in, the, in the, the 4th and 5th century. And also he's dealing with this question. Um, Rome had, had sort, sort of become Christian. It was in the process of happening. And in the year 410, Rome fell to the barbarians. And so the pagans said, that's it. You stop worshipping the gods, the gods put given their judgment by, you know, the fall of the city. And uh, Augustine is responding to that charge in, in part. So, I mean, it's written for a particular time hmm. and a particular context. And, and it's a
0: pastoral... It's, he's helping people
1: pastorally. Yes, yes, and, and, and an apologetic work. Um, hmm. But, of course, what he wasn't writing for us today. Hmm, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's striking.
0: So people, people need to read the Lion Christian Classics uh-huh. Collection... To actually find what are the oh, classics. Right. Well, no, story. they can
1: find that in lots of other ways. But I mean, that's uh, that was my attempt to try and uh, select some of the the sort of key key things from the past. Mm.
0: When you talk about the resonances between mm. someone like Ambrose, who's third century, mm. and Calvin, fourth century, th- fourth century, mm.
1: yes. Uh, and, but does he straddle the two? Because he's oh. a bit older than Augustine, isn't he? Uh, yes. Um, no, no, no. He's very much fourth, fourth okay. century. I mean, he. Um, I'm pretty certain. Uh, pretty certain. He's all oh, right. fourth century. So if you think about him
0: and Calvin, who's sixteenth, mm. sixteenth century, mm. <laughs> mm. Um, what kind of themes are you finding these two men are rejoicing in, clinging to, and propelling to the people?
1: Yeah, well the thing is, with Calvin's use of the Fathers, not exclusively, but predominantly, what you have here is a lawyer. He is arguing in court for Protestantism, and he's calling witnesses. So he, is, he isn't interested, and in, almost no one was at that time, in a sort of objective, dispassionate reading of these people. He is turning to them for as ammunition, if you like. Um, he does so in, in a very thorough way, and generally, He interprets them correctly, he doesn't sort of abuse them, um, generally speaking, but that's primarily why he's reading them. But equally, he did come, I mean, with with someone like Bernard, he he began with that, but then he came to appreciate just Bernard's spirituality, uh, the way he expressed things, and... um, and quoted him for, just for pleasure. Mm. Um, <laughs> yes, I mean, Ambrose, he, uh, there are a number of topics he appears to him, him on, but also he, um, he has a, a, an illustration that come, particularly likes so for justification by faith, picking up from, uh, from Genesis. And uh, I, it, it's basically, if I remember rightly, it's where Jacob comes before Isaac, and Isaac smells the, the robes of Esau. Uh, the you know the the the, the, the skin, mm. and uh, he takes right. this as an example of how, when we come in the presence of God, he as it were smells Christ, mm. and a uh, cavern rather like that image, isn't that and, and use that for for example. That's wonderful. Yeah, isn't that
0: wonderful? Yes, yeah, see, see, yeah, uh, it's like um, when you find a, a Tyndale Tyndale's description of the gospel, and it's. Uh, that joyful, and it's all the old spelling, that joyful old thing which, which makes the heart glad and sing for joy. Mm. And um, when you see these great heroes from church history for whom, well, the buck stops in joy, <laughs> the buck stops in beauty, pleasure, rejoicing, mm. it's fascinating. <laughs> There's the lawyer Calvin of Geneva <laughs> just quoting Bernard for pleasure. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. Mm. Mm. Excellent. So, um, and is there anyone who has been of the last of the twentieth century who you've you've said uh, this has been a real help to me, and you've rejoiced in their ascendance?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. Lots of people. I mean, I, C.S. Lewis is. I, I still enjoy reading C. S. Lewis. I think he had this, this great ability of expressing himself and, uh, and communicating. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, but lots of other people Yeah, as well. Now, uh, so uh, to what are you up presently? Uh, well, actively? I used to teach a, a course here for the second year students on sin and grace. And um, I've been writing that up for um, as, as a book, which IVP are, are bringing out next month. No, sorry, this month. It's November, mm. isn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah. so it's coming out this month. Later this month, sin and grace, sin and grace, that's Mm -hmm. right. Yes, a range of topics Mm -hmm. looking through it chronologically through history or thematically or biblically. It's it's very much with a historical perspective, but no, it's thematically. I mean, I start with just a brief bit on creation to put it in its context, and then um, uh, the effect of sin, uh, the nature of sin, fall, original sin, and grace, selection, predestination, and then. becoming a Christian, uh, repentance, faith, and baptism, especially baptism and the, how baptism and faith tie up together. And then um, justification, there's a major section on justification, and and then sanctification. Hmm. Uh, so hmm. covering a, a range of themes. Hmm.
0: And when you talk about the, the effects of sin, one thing which people have been talking about recently, of course, and which has been uh, so revealing has been this whole idea that you can't just explain to someone the gospel and they realize, oh, I, I realize I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Our hearts are bent against it. Mm-hmm. And our hearts don't want, it doesn't flatter us to say, mm-hmm. I am mm-hmm. in need fundamentally. Mm-hmm. I bring nothing to this. Mm-hmm. And, and in order, therefore, to give someone an opportunity to be saved, we need to preach a Christ mm-hmm. whom the Holy Spirit will endorse. Looking in the early church. If you get, for example, Pelagius, just gets frustrated and tells people we stop being bad, mm. and then Augustine says n- n- you can't stop being bad. You need mm. to be born again. Mm. Uh, but that, th- then I think Augustine got that, and then I know, well, a few people kind of implied it, and then you got the Reformation. <laughs> Is there someone else who, since Augustine, and then in the in the into the Reformation, drew out the fact that no, you're not just Uh, going to be uh, persuaded that you made a mistake in sinning, Mm. but you are Mm. sinful.
1: Yeah, well, certainly Augustine um, puts a strong emphasis on uh, a very sort of high doctrine of of, of sin and our our sinful state and the need for God's grace to break in. And that idea was there in the Middle Ages. Uh, Actually, the amazing thing about Augustine is that uh, Augustine, he sort of sums up, all the early church in many ways. He wrote so much, and he, he absorbs, and, and uh, n- not absolutely everything, but he, he absorbs so much of what was taught in the early church. And then the, the Middle Ages is basically all Augustine. Uh, the good bits and the bad bits, the bad bits uh, are, are, are from Augustine. And yet the Reformation was a rediscovery of Augustine. And the... Catholic Counter-Reformation was a great discovery of Augustine. I mean, he just embraces it all. Wow. And there's just so much in him. So there are many, potentially many, Augustines. Hmm. Uh, um,
0: hmm. Warfield said um, the Reformation was the triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over his doctrine of the church.
1: Yeah, well, it's certainly true that all, his doctrine of the church is what the uh, Catholics uh, appealed to. Hmm. Um, hmm. he uh, his doctrine of grace is a little bit more ambivalent. I mean, the reformers recognised it when it came to justification. Uh, Augustine hadn't quite got it right, and they, and they actually said they actually said so. Yeah,
0: Str- that's interesting. Use the term recognized it." They recognised hmm. it. There's a resonance. That's, I, that's the thing I find. I think all all believers are trying to <laughs> introduce their friend to the gospel. There's that sense in which you're trying to describe something to them, which mm. you hope they're just going to get it. You yeah, think, yeah. You don't recognise it. I'm I'm sending this out for you. I'm making mm. it as easy as possible. Mm. But unless a person is, um, unless the Holy Spirit does His work, then uh, mm. you, you well, can really well, so I, I I mentioned too earlier
1: on how um, uh, when I had my fir- first uh, the, my spiritual conception, as it were, when when I was t- chatting with this teacher friend who, was link- who had links Lee the Abbey how I actually said, and I, mean, I just find it so hilarious to think I could have said this, you know, I can't really think of anything I've done that's wrong. Whereas when I, uh, at Lee Abbey, when the the, um, the 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 big event, the sermon on the Saturday evening at Lee Abbey, I, I was just so conscious that, uh, I, almost the other way around, I, I, you know, that my whole life was dominated wow. by, by selfishness. And that basically, I needed to be born again. I just needed for God to turn me around. I needed to, yeah, for him, to, him, him to, to act. And and so that's a complete vault fuss. And um, one of the things is I'd, I'd been on a holiday. I had a, a Dutch friend from the office. He very kindly, uh, he had a car and, and uh, he took me with him and we drove from the Netherlands right the way down to Switzerland and back, and uh, down through Germany, back through France, and, and went camping and had a, a great holiday together. And I think something that just came home to me during that time is that I realised that I was basically trying to get him to do what I wanted him to do, as it were. And I suppose that was maybe the Holy Spirit beginning with the, with the sort of conviction of sin and then the preaching and the time at the Abbey sort of brought that out and uh, hit, brought that home. Trying to get him way.
0: to do what you wanted him to do.
1: Yeah, basically, I was trying to manipulate him, and I was being selfish in the mm. way. Uh, I, I just just became aware that I was you doing. Started, that. How fascinating! What a fascinating mm. thing! You started to feel.
0: You feel you felt a finger on you. How mm. fascinating! Uh, what a fascinating! I'm sure. Mm. So um, um, the 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 book is go, is called Sin and Grace. Yes, and it's uh, it's out in November. Now. Um, now, you have been considering and considering people who have been considering the gospel for decades. You've been teaching it, mm. and you've been teaching how people have taught it. Mm. You've been meeting students, and you've, seen, uh, you've been looking at the world with the eyes of a historian as well as a theologian. What would some advice be that you would give to people listening to this?
1: Yeah, well, actually, actually, there is one thing, and, and I actually say this in the in, in the, bu- the book as well, sin and grace, and that is that uh, when I was a student, uh, evangelicals were a sort of tiny, uh, sort of small minority who tended to be despised in academic circles, in church circles, and, and and so on, on the defensive, and of course now evangelicalism has become the predominant form of, of Protestantism. And uh, has, is a very different situation. But, and as a result, whereas originally uh, evangelicals were, tended to sort of focus in on just a few points, now they've sort of broadened out, become interested in issues like justice and that sort of thing. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's a danger, there's a danger that in doing that, they end up losing grip of the basic doctrines of the gospel. And Alison McGrath points out in one of his books, this is exactly what happened in the nineteenth century. In the middle of the nineteenth century, evangelicalism was the uh, the predominant form of of English Church life. By the end of the century, it was a pale shadow of itself, and and they, they'd lost they'd taken now the off the ball. And he he makes the comment that there's no guarantee it won't happen again. And I think it's important that, uh, that while it's good that evangelicals have a, take an interest in a whole range of topics and so on, have the confidence to do so, if we lose touch with these basic doctrines of the gospel, then um, as, as I think there's a real danger. And uh, I'll just give you one, one example. Um, you sometimes get this, you, you hear people come up with this, this vacuous slogan, um, God loves you just as you are because that's the way he made you. Now, if he's, referring to some, if he's referring to something like your height or so, um, then, you know, it's a fair enough point. But just, okay, you know, God loves me just as I am a paedophile because that's how he made me. Well, I'm not a paedophile, as it happens, but that's not how God makes people. Mm. Uh, sin has distorted us. And the, the, that, 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 old, that slogan, God loves you just how you are because that's how he made you, completely bypasses the doctrine of sin. It's saying accept yourself because you're fine as you are. God wouldn't God wouldn't want to improve anything. How could you improve anything? You're fantastic already, and it's all tied in with this business of self-esteem as well. Um, one one of the chapters in in the book on sin is on self-love and self-esteem, which is closely related to the the whole idea of justification mm. and. Um, and that's where I think uh, there's, uh, people have gone astray, many oh, people so have gone true. astray today. So true. Yeah, so I think hang on to these basic doctrines of the gospel. Don't, well, when I, um, when I was first here, uh, the leaving students all had a chance to preach in chapel because we used to have a chapel service with the sermon every day of the week. So there was time for them all to do it. And some of my colleagues noticed you tended to get the same sort of sermon from a whole lot of them. They almost as if they only had one sermon. And um, there was a sort of narrow view of the gospel, uh, and, and that was what people stood firm on. But the, uh, it's right we've moved out beyond that, and people got a lot more to say, and, and, and not just uh, dwelling on one or two points, but that mustn't happen at the expense of the core uh, truths of the gospel. Mm.
0: And here you've been describing how over generations and centuries that core, central part has been frequently to do with a doctrine which makes the heart sing. Mm. A doctrine which isn't uh, mm. just uh, pedantic, but is mm. glorious and is wonderful. Mm. And yes, uh, it, uh, it does concern you when you see people, oh, it's just that. Mm. You're describing mm. the glory of eternity. It's mm. not just that. Mm. And uh, if you have seen it as just that, have you got it? Mm. And then, of course, uh, and the whole world and the flesh and the devil are saying, yeah, it's just that, it's just mm. that. Yeah. But the Holy Spirit yeah. says, no. And eternity says, yeah, and the mm. Lamb will fill it with his glory. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. it's been absolutely wonderful mm-hmm. to have this time with you. Thank you so much, yeah, we'll Tony. And uh, yeah, we we'll look to forward talk. to reading Sin and Grace. <laughs> yeah, thank you. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast, And for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.